This is Monica Perez, and I am here with William Ramsey, investigative journalist, author, documentarian, and host of one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and actually a leading podcast in the world, top 1% podcast in the world, William Ramsey Investigates. William is an iconic figure among deep researchers, and his signature style always reminds me that I'm in for a good listen. So now it is, once again, time, fellow divers, to strap on your tanks, because we're going deep with a dive master. Hello, William. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you on. Awesome. Thanks for the invite. It's great to be with you. It's been too long. I think it was three years when I interviewed, interviewed you and Binkley. So. Yes, which was quite the honor, I do recall. But this is, I mean, when I was thinking, first of all, I had asked you to come on just because I wanted to talk to you personally about anything you wanted to talk about. But I have a special interest in the whole Jack Parsons, um, L. Ron Hubbard, Alistair Crawley stuff because I moved to Pasadena, the Pasadena environs in uh, California, and there's a big Parsons building. There's JPL is here, Caltech, even PCC, which is Pasadena City College, where I think he had some stuff going on. So I started getting interested in that. And of course, you're the man who wrote the book, not just this book. This isn't the only book you've read, uh, written featuring Crowley. The other one I think you wrote first was the 9-11 book. Right, let's see if I actually have it right here. Let's see. There it is. Probably, yes, This is nice. the third edition. Yeah, and you are obviously a real professional author because, and I can always tell if somebody has journalistic training or is just, I mean, I don't, but I, I can write a good blog post because the just the structure of it, the, the sentences, the reading, it's so easy. It's a pleasure to read. And this is so fast moving because every single chapter is like, I mean, some of them are three or four pages or less. And it's just oh, so many people, and it's not even everybody, but so many people that have been influenced by Crowley or he had direct interaction with that still their impact on our culture resonates to this day. But I wanted to say one thing. I was trying to put my finger on what I love about your show stylistically and it, I think I put my finger on it and I, and I, I know there's at least one person who's going to get this. I feel like you're the Man Ray of podcasting because you, I don't know if you're going to get it, but because you have this like raw authenticity that makes it feel very intimate. Like, you know, you feel like you're in the room with Man Ray. I feel like I'm in the room with you. And uh, I think Man Ray probably had his own dark stuff. I don't accuse you of having darkness, but <laughs> but the style is just... When, when you read a lot of this stuff, it seems like you're definitely looking into the abyss. I don't know. If uh, I mean, I'm not an occultist in any way, shape, or form. I've never been a practicing no, the opposite. Person, so, yeah. So. And I know you had said I'd heard you say in a previous interview. For, but this has been around for a long time. I think one interview I uh, heard you talking about the other book. You said it was actually quite a dark and unpleasant experience to go down this path. I think so. I think looking into it, I think it was important, but I didn't expect it to to uncover so many things. Really, this is kind of this book is a follow on to Prophet of Evil. So once I got done with Prophet of Evil, Crowley's life ended in 1947. But there were just reading through that, I saw so many people he influenced. So that's what kind of led me to write this particular book. And it's a long list, just like you said. Yeah, it is. And I mean, 
you actually, and I didn't, I, I listened to a lot of your conversation with Hans Utter, but not the entire thing. So I am really fascinated with the Satanism and occultism in the whole rock era. And you touch on some of that with real, what I like about it, of course, is that obviously this is not speculative. These are documented interactions that you've had there. And 800 I, footnotes. I did a lot of pretty <laughs> wide, uh, over footnoted that book. I probably could have footnoted it more, but literally 800 footnotes. So I think it's exhaust, certainly exhausting, if not exhaustive. Uh, yes, and I actually sometimes I'll go through uh, a book and I'll just start getting the books that are in the footnotes. But you do such a great job of just making it's just just the facts, and it's still hundreds of pages. I mean, it's not that it's not unreadable, but it's pretty big. But one one thing I would like to start with, basically how you also start the book, is if you could give us, for somebody who just doesn't know, I have a kind of broad spectrum of listeners who really knows nothing about this subject, who, the, who Alistair, and is it Crowley or Crowley? Crowley, Crowley like the crow? called The Beetle, where he rhymed Crowley with Holy, so that's what I use. Oh, but, just uh, Ozzy Osbourne would say Mr. Crowley. <laughs> so yes! I, I, I've kind of bounced around. I try to be like true to the thing. And now I don't really care. So I don't know if it gets mispronounced, but I think it's I think it's really Crowley. So I have been reading this book publicly in my in my kitchen for a few days now, just to like make notes and go back and little things that I have written. And my husband, who has this bizarre propensity to burst into song, has been running around my house saying "Mr. Crowley," and I'm just like, I think it's Crowley. <laughs> so- that's good. So, it's a classic. I, it's still on the radio. That was really kind of my knowledge of Crowley up until right. fairly recently, within the last ten or fifteen years, was really just that song. I had no idea yeah. really um, how serious an occultist he was. But, okay, so so I'm going to want to know everything, like who he was, what he was up to. I want to know if his magic was real, if he was a spy, if he was there to plant occultism in our culture. Just give me it all. Just dump. yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> But yeah, nice. he was born. He was born in 1875, uh, Leamington Spa, in England, to a wealthy brewing brewing family. They also sold things in pubs like sandwiches, but they were uh, very wealthy. And his sister passed away at birth, so he was an only child. And he, he grew up in something called the Exclusive Brethren, which was a subset, a more rigid version of the Plymouth Brethren. And the person who run it was a guy by the name of Darby. If people know that kind of name within Christianity, Christianity kind of invented dispensation, dispensationalism. So he grew up in a family. His dad was an itinerant preacher. He used to go with him. He liked his dad. His dad passed away when he was 12. And he went into the care of his mom, who he did not really care for, and her brother, so his uncle. And so that was kind of the beginning of his rebellion. He uh, was sent to very harsh what they would call public schools in the UK, we would call them private, but they were associated with the exclusive brethren. One was in Cambridge where he ended up and he ended up almost dying. Like he got beat up and bullying, really vicious stuff. So then he was uh, in the care of private tutors. Then he went off, he, he applied and got through the uh, tests to go to Cambridge and was there and left without obtaining a degree. And while he was there, he became interested in the occult. He was actually said he was 
Sorry, the in Cambridge, like the Cambridge. So he yeah. was he was quite accomplished because I, I I'm under the impression that he did have talents and skills, and that would confirm that he was actually legit smart. I think he was legit smart, and he said he was in this kind of uh, group. He actually called him a, a different uh, higher or lower set of parasites while he was there. But he was among the rich, like he was very wealthy. When his mom passed away, his inheritance was like twenty million pounds like a, a significant amount of money which he squandered but uh i think it would be the equivalent of 20 million dollars today sorry but it was a lot of money but yeah so he was at cambridge he studied he was white hot on three things poetry mountain climbing and occultism so he thought of thought of himself he wanted to be in the kind of great poets and he he did tons of poetry which hasn't really maintained any real popular interest maybe among occultists uh, Not like Edgar Allan Poe. Like Edgar right. Allan Poe had dark themes, but it really, people still love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no. So his poetry, Parsons liked his poetry. Uh, he used to recite Crowley's most famous poem, Hymns of Pan, or Hymn to Pan, in the Arroyo Grande there in uh, Pasadena. But yeah, so his first books were about poetry, and then he left and really kind of uh, went through the Masonic orders. He was always traveling, so he had family money. So he's never, it's hard to trace like his whereabouts. Like he didn't sit in London for 10 years. He would be traveling to the Swiss Alps to do very challenging uh, rock climbing. And then he did two big trips to India to uh, take on, back then I think it, they were called Kanchenjunga and Chogori. So when he was younger. And the second trip that he did pretty much got him punted from the entire mountain climbing community because he was such a jerk and he was abusing the porters and things like that. So I he wonder if he ever, in, yeah. ever ran Sorry. into Hemingway. He Didn't did Hemingway? run into Hemingway. Like yeah, really? So it, yeah, so Hemingway came across him in France in the 20s. And what's the other guys? Ford, Maddox Ford was with Hemingway, I think, at that time. So some a lot of literary, he cruelly wanted to, was really a literateur, I would call him that. Okay. But he wanted to be a literary phenomenon. So he's constantly writing. I would say he was an expert with prose and poetry. And he wrote for, he ended up writing for Vanity Fair here in the States. But he was always traveling around, so rock climbing in uh, Mexico and ended up in the States. But he's his real interest in occultism began through Masonry. Then he joined this post-Masonic order. So you go through Masonry and you get into the Golden Dawn. So he's in the Golden Dawn with kind of cultural, very important cultural figures like uh, Buck Yates, W.B. Yates who he had actual conflict with. They had to kind of an infamous uh, scrap where they Crowley got, says he, well, Yates says he threw him down the stairs. Crowley says he, he was doing magical stuff. Anyway, so he learns a lot from the Golden Dawn. He, he goes to the Second Order. He kind of was involved in the dissolution of that group. And then he had a lawsuit where, you know, he made an oath not to disclose anything from the Golden Dawn. So what does he do? discloses all the golden dawn secrets and then gets sued and there's a court record of him getting sued uh so then he what moves were the on. secrets was there a secret or two that's a that you remember anything well, worthwhile say that they remember? take oaths not to disclose kind of the magical practices i think the right golden dawn oh okay was really had a lot of rituals and right, okay. concepts and ideas that were not to be divulged so he made right, it okay oath of silence so it's literally occulted knowledge yeah, but not anymore. Okay. Now you can go buy some of the books of some of his followers, some of the guy I include in the book. There has to be something missing. 
is can't have the whole well, recipe. That's a whole <laughs> I have other story. or something. <laughs> that's a whole other story. How much of these occult groups disclose and divulge all of their knowledge? But uh, that's that's kind of outside of Crowley. Like I've talked to OTO members. Crowley goes from the Golden Dawn. He starts the AA, which is the Astrum Argentum, which is kind of like a mail order magical group at that time. And then he eventually gets uh, somebody from the OTO in Germany. A guy, I uh, can't remember his name right now, comes to London and knocks on his door and claims Crowley's ripping off his stuff, his sex magic stuff. And Crowley says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And eventually they kind of become friends. And then Crowley Jones joins the OTO and becomes the head of the German order, Ordo Templi Orientis, in 1924. So he becomes the outer head of the OTO in time. And then puts a lot of his ideas in there. But one of the prime events that happened with him was in 1904, he was returning from India, stopped in Cairo, Egypt, and said, uh, his his wife at the time, a woman by the name of Kelly, said they're they're they want to talk to you, or I can't remember exactly what it was. He received this book he called the Book of the Law. It was written in three different parts, and that was kind of a received book that became the prime kind of centerpiece of his religion that he eventually called the Lima. It's Greek word for will. So a received book, does that mean like he was imparted directly into his brain or was it on a piece of paper that somebody gave him? He said over three days, there was a being over his shoulder that dictated the book to him and he wrote it down. And so, okay. you, you, yeah, yeah. so that's what Crowley said. So this is going to be a recurring theme that there are beings, there seem to be interdimensional beings. There are that his lamb looks like a tall gray. Like there seems to be, and the science fiction writers that maybe we get into a little bit, that overlap seems like there's demons, um, you know, demons, angels, aliens, all this kind of stuff. I, I can't tell the difference. So I feel like that, that theme keeps popping up. Definitely in his life, I would say it definitely would. I think that he was doing rituals even before 1904. He was doing something. He went and bought this manor that burned down and is being reconstructed called Bulliskin Manor, which is on Loch Ness, like the infamous Loch Ness monster. So people have tried to make ties between the Loch Ness monster and Crowley. But he was up there. He said he was doing this ritual called the Abramelin ritual. And you'll see these different rituals in his life, like working, what they call workings. And it's not like something that happens like over two hours. Like usually he's writing down something that happens day after day after day after day because he's trying to get a result. So he he never completed this particular ritual, but he said that being showed up and the place became haunted. So now it's infamously supposed to be haunted. It was eventually purchased by Jimmy Page and his caretaker said the place was haunted. So this the recurrence of beings and, and discarnate entities goes through Crowley's life. And it's not just the one who dictated the book of the law to him, which he calls Awas, which eventually he will he will say is the Satan of this world. He will put it into his kind of magnum opus, magic and theory and practice. So he'll admit that Awas is Satan. But he, he coded words. So he, he codes everything actually in his rituals and things like that. He was very clever. I hate that though, because it's hard to decipher and to authenticate. I think it's deliberately like that. At least a lot of his rituals and things in like the book of lies and things he's writing about, he's using wordplay and things to disguise kind of the sexual magical practices and things like that. But that was kind of his advance, like what Crowley did that maybe wasn't as prevalent in other 
practitioners of the occult was he added sexual behavior and drugs. So he was very much involved in doing like he would be like a rock star today. Like he did anhelonium, which is uh, not LSD, but mushrooms and cocaine and sniffing ether and just doing just and smoking constantly drinking and really was a multi using you know, like a garbage head like he would take anything that was around so yeah, and he was good sex- looking when he was young it looked like and then he, he was- really did not look good and then he always had that awful stare which clearly <laughs> he was like going all hitler in the mirror with that one i'm sure but no i think you're right i think when he was at cambridge he was considered to be good looking that's kind of where he went off and became a bisexual but i think that he would be a dandy really I think that at that time, as a po- poetry guy, like a guy who wore, wore frilly shirts and, uh, you know, was a man of leisure, I think that really was his lifestyle at that point. So he definitely went back. He went bald. He had had – he was messing around when he was younger with some bomb that went off in his face. And so you'll see the later pictures. You can tell he has pox in his face. It's from that uh, injury that he had. He was actually in a coma. And some people have surmised or, you know, speculated that might have been where his personality change came from, was from have a little brain damage. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot going on. He's meeting different people who I've included in this book, people who are still around. Well, not around, but are still prevalent in the occult, like uh, Israel Regardi or uh, so those people kind of learned from him. Israel Regardi, I call his apprentice. But he goes from he goes to the United States in 1914 on the Lusitania. So he comes up right the Lusitania Gosh. that really kicked off the war of the U.S. against. Wow, talk about okay. death! Yeah, no, really incredible. So he comes to the United States. So he's in the United States between 1914 and 1918, and he, he had this long. He, he was so self-important. He thought of himself so highly that he wrote his own biography when he was like 45 or 50, and he called it confessions so he talks about this travel who he met who he was hanging out in dc he was hanging out with kind of like the elite of the u.s uh actors and a lot of journalists and uh that's where he had this uh ala mantra working which was on washington square in kind of the center of new york uh one washington square he did the ala mantra working and the result of that was the drawing of what he called lamb which is a word derivate derived from llama right so the llama is also kind of a honorific title like the dalai lama right right so, so that's an eastern thing and i did notice some yoga stuff and i have just no have heard and i never really fully grasped it that bringing yogic and other eastern practices to the west was like intentionally there to undermine christianity so i wasn't really I surprised to that. see that stuff in there and that was uh, Gerald York eventually brought a certain type of yoga. But Crowley... Who has a chapter. Tri- yeah, it's a <laughs> chapter on York. Gerald York is an important figure. But Crowley, when he was traveling, he went to India, but he also kind of went through present day Vietnam and South China, and he picked up the I Ching and some other things too. Uh, so he brought all, all that stuff back from Buddhist practices and yogic practices. There's actually pictures of him doing yoga. Uh, which was very pretty edgy for that time. I, that was uh, right at the turn of the century. Here in LA, that's like there's a yoga studio on every corner, so it's kind of passe. But uh, at that time, that was kind of it. And that was really how he created his religion, was in bringing together East and West and uh, 
different ideas. So, uh, so he was in the U.S. He was most likely a spy. I mean, more than likely, it was uh, Jerry Spence wrote a book called The Beast 666. Oh, Secret Agent 666, where he did the research and, and confirmed that Crowley was an asset of British intelligence at that time, which was called the Secret Intelligence Service. So it was pre-MI5, MI6. So Crowley confirmed to be an intel asset, I would say. Oh, definitely an intel asset at that time. And most of his life, he was probably had some correlation or connection to intelligence, even when he was kind of old in his uh, late 60s or 70s. So he leaves the United States. He says in his biography, my work is done, which he alludes to the fact that he was trying to get the U.S. into war against Germany. That was really kind of the, the whole goal of Britain, the British Empire at that time, was to get the U.S. to uh, assist its manpower. So he was writing for these uh, magazines. One was called The International. Um, very interesting stuff. He also wrote for Vanity Fair. So he was he was a he really was a literateur. He was a kid put out, he would put out uh, articles and things like that at the first try. So he would never go back and re-edit them. Like he was that skilled. So he wouldn't wow. waste oh. time. Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't waste time like re-editing. So there's very, you can see a lot of his works and writing and his hmm. handwriting is almost like it's automatic writing. So wow. he uh, was, yeah. So he's a remarkable guy. Very intelligent guy. So then he's in the States. He goes back to the UK. He ends up starting this thing called the Abbey of Thelema, right? So his religion is Thelema. And he yes. he bases, he goes and does some, like throws the I Ching and thinks that it's going to be in Sicily. So he goes to Sicily and it's not what you think. It's really almost like a reformed uh, barn, barn that they put kind of spackling up on the wall. But he called it his Abbey of Thelema and he tried to get people to come there from the UK. So he could train them and teach them. And that didn't last very long. It lasted about uh, three years. And he had somebody die on the site. There were allegations of like the sacrifice of a cat, baby, stuff like that. Oh, there was, is that the part that was in the book where like they heard a bunch of noise and when they came in, somebody was dead and he went to a mental institution for three months. Do you remember that story? Yeah, that's, I think that happened in France. I think that when Crowley was in France. So he ended up getting in. He was actually kicked out of in, uh, Italy by Italy. Mussolini. Yeah. Yeah. Italy by Mussolini. Yeah, right good on now. Mussolini. <laughs> right. He's smart. But Crowley, interestingly, was at like this, this uh, very important event in Italian history, which is when the black shirts marched on Rome. The fascists took over. Crowley was in Rome at that time taking notes. So that's another indicator of his intel. Yeah. Uh, or Yes. So, so either, yeah, he's a malevolent influence or whatever, or yeah, he was much more likely it, an agent, which I think religious are often, you know, to the extent this is a religion or whatever, are often intel advertently or inadvertently. But I just, I was just shocked that he literally got away with probably murder, right? There's a bunch of noise up there and he blamed it on the devil, but <laughs> there were only yeah, two guys I in mean, that room. <laughs> there was a sad, there was a sacrifice of a goat and there is a first person account of a woman who was there on site. Her name was Betty May. Uh, and her book is tiger woman. She was a really fascinating woman. She was a model at the time and her boyfriend was the one who died. And, uh, can't remember his name right now. He wasn't in great, he wasn't in perfect health, but uh, he passed away. But she said she saw, she was in conflict with him all the time. And she was the first person, like he wanted to be called Beast. So he his reference is the B66. So his followers would call him not Crow, Mr. Crowley, he, they call him Beast. 
So he, he was uh, quite the character. So yeah, so he gets kicked out. So then he goes to France and hangs out there and hangs out with some other characters and does more stuff. He's involved in a, more magical practices. One is Isia. I mean, there's a lot of very strange things about Crowley, and a lot of these magical practices are shielded by the people in the occult, but they're involved in some very strange stuff. And one is ECL, so he's involved in that. It's Arado Comatose Lucidity, so he's involved in that. Then he gets kicked out of France. Actually, Regardi comes to France and helps him, but then he gets kicked out of France, and so he's been kicked out of two countries. He goes back to England. Then he ends up in Germany in the Weimar Republic for about three years. And he has a showing of his his not very good art. So he thought he fashioned himself as an artist, but he wasn't he couldn't paint for uh, with much skills, in my opinion. So he was there. Then Hitler came to power, I think in 32. I think Crowley leaves in 33. And he's pretty much semi retired at that point. He kind of travels around. He went to um, Portugal. He has connections with other kind of famous literary figures, people who you, people would know um, in Portugal and Spain, and then ends up in Hastings in the south of France at kind of an old folks home, a nicer upscale old folks home where he uh, passes away a very intense heroin addict in 1947 at the age of 42. Uh, and, and his last words are, I am perplexed. And I just feel like he just sees Satan laughing at him. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> you're befriending he, he me never, was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I think that there were times like in his own writings where he said, I'm insane. So he kind of questioned his own sanity, his own decision making. But he, I don't think he ever really gave up his interest in the occult. Like he was still, there's a one of his books got compiled, which is his letters, which is called Magic Without Tears, where people would send him stuff. And he would actually take the time to thoughtfully respond to them. And so that that was happening all the way up in the last, you know, latter parts of his life when he was old and aged and he had really bad asthma. So he couldn't get around very easy. That was a recurring problem in his life, physical problem. But uh, I think he was there to the end. His magical word that he was or name that he was given is Perdurabo, which is I will endure. So I think that he kind of did that to the end, his rebellion and all that stuff. And and he, he has endured of, yeah. beyond his lifetime. I feel like. I think that he, that was his kind of goal. I think he he was he was trying to make a mark for himself, and I think he did. I think he ended up in forty seven as the, and something that he tried to do and, and attained is to be the greatest occultist in written history. Okay, uh, that was fantastic. Great overview. So I have some questions and I want to, I want to hit some other larger topics, but I want to just dig in to this idea of real magic. So there are some passages in your book. There was one incident with, or numerous with Parsons, um, a woman named Pallenberg that where it seems like there really was some voodoo type like, you know, making somebody ill or killing somebody or conjuring. Yet there's another passage where uh, Alistair Crowley, Crowley has a guy, I forget which one it is, Dryberg or somebody, who somehow came into possession of Crowley's diary. So Crowley was like, look, you're going to, you can see a vision, look into the star. And the guy says, I see something. I see something. He describes the diary and he explains that, 
the look on Crowley's face was like just absolute shock and wonderment that this magical thing actually worked. And it made me wonder if he was a charlatan, if those people were delusional, what you, what you think his opinion was about real magic and what your opinion is. Was it possible? I say the same thing about prayer. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that by invoking something outside this world, you can actually affect something inside this world? What do you think? Was it real? Did he think it was real? I think Crowley thought it was real. I think he engaged in uh, what would be spiritual practices or, you know, non-conventional practices. He believed that he could astral travel and communicate with people. And there's writings of him doing that. And you can see his drawings from astral travel. Uh, he has those. And I think that the just like even Lamb or whatever, he's having something come back that's consistent in our culture, 20th century. Yeah. That's a culture. Good point. So he thought he could do it. He, I think he really believed that magic did work. And I've talked to modern day ma magicians who believe that through the practices, they are facilitating change in conformance yes. of will. That would be Crowley's axiom is so, the purpose of magic. Yes. I'm, uh, I was raised Catholic. I'm a practicing Catholic. And my aunt, who was her mother, was my, my grandmother was an orphan raised by Irish nuns. So it was like, they're very strict. And I mean, I would say borderline superstitious, but my aunt would say, I think I went to a psychic and she was horrified. And she said, you're just not allowed to do that. And I said, what, you know, you think it doesn't work? She said, no, I think it does work, but we're forbidden to do it. Like it says it in the Bible and it uses Satan as a conduit or whatever. It's demonic. I'm not saying that my opinion is that, however, I have no opinion on it. However, it was, she acknowledged that she thought it was real. So I, I don't, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. Certainly mainstream thought that it could be real. I think Crowley was in contact with evil entities. I think that's consistent. So it wasn't just this one AWOS or his Abramelin thing or Lom. There was another one he called the wizard. So he was, and another one Corinzon. So he's doing these things to kind of break on through to the other side. So I think that he's he believed that he was in contact with these beings. And he covered and you look at his magical record of, of Crowley, which says a lot about himself is hyper egotism. But he's always coveting this contact with Awas. I see him on the rocks in Sicily. Uh, Cefalu is the city that he was in, northern Sicily. I was I see wondering him on how rocks. to pronounce that. <laughs> Cefalu. Yeah, Cefalu. Okay. But uh, yeah, so and then that's it's still there. The actual Avia Philema is run down, but it's still there. You can see pictures of it online. But uh, yeah, so I think he was. I do believe that prayer works. I think they proved that it does, that people have responses from prayer. So I, I'm not a materialist. I don't believe that the five senses are all that are out there. I've had spiritual things happen to me that are not really explicable. So, um, so I do think, I think that there's another dimension or dimensions uh, that the, the dark side ones are very spiritual. Crowley was a very spiritual person and religious. It's just that his religion and his spirituality was like devil worship. Yeah. And, right. Uh, occultism. Um, he would do this thing, Liber, Liber Resh, where he would salute the sun three times a day. So he would he would religiously stop and say, you know, hail to the sun, like very pagan stuff. And he'd make his followers do that. And that was the, kind of the thing of Abbey and Thelema. At, at the Abbey of Thelema, that's what he was doing. He was like a cult leader. So he was telling people what to do, what to eat, 
how to behave and then well, have rituals. And you, yeah. Sometimes I think that those, I wonder whether some of those people are just hucksters who are trying to lead people, but that isn't to say some aren't. But I also, I have experienced at the very least some totally unlikely synchronicities. So I would say that there's definitely something going on in another dimension. But I also wonder about him. I know you've established his relationship to military intelligence or British intelligence. And that could be as a spy. And I think you can be, a, like I said, like religious people can be spies without even meaning to, like Catholic priests have to report back. So I, then when I realized that, I was like, wow, so the priests that were in hiding, like in the Soviet Union, were spies, like whether they knew it or not, they actually were spies. But then I think you can take it to a next level and be actually an agent. So like the Central Intelligence Agency is less about intelligence and more about operations, certainly now. Do you think that he, that this, he was conducting operations on behalf of the kind of sinister elite. We see the counterculture. We see that they do terrible things. I absolutely want to talk about 9-11 is what I thought the only explanation that ever made sense is like it was a black mass of some kind. So do you think he was there to impart this into our culture? I think that at a certain point, he wanted to change the whole culture. He wanted to bring out the new aeon. So aeonic change, which is different than like an age. An aeon is like thousands of years. So he called that the birth of the child or the birth of Horus, the age of Horus. So at a certain point, maybe in early 20th century, as he matured in the occult, I think then that included political, cultural, sociological change. So full change to magic, no God but man. And so I think he was dedicated to that. And that's an aspect of Crowley. Like people misapply the term dabbler to Crowley. He was not a dabbler. He dedicated his entire last of his life after Cambridge to the occult in a very rigorous sense. So he's compiling things. He put together an encyclopedia called the Equinox, which is where you find the drawing of Lamb and some of his other kind of magical works. So I think that he really wanted to change. And he talked about politics. And I, you can see those quotes. I think it's in Prophet of Evil about what his ideal uh, worldview was, which is neo Well, it's feudalism. He said that there's no better political thing than the feudal. And we have to get rid of the, Protestant, the Jews and the Protestant Christians. Uh, so oh. he's flat out said that, yeah. Two things. And I, had yeah. the law of liberty. He had this whole idea of liberty. And he thought he wanted to reach the youth of, of the UK and share his ideas. So I don't think he was ever really successful with that. But uh, he did have political, he wanted the political application of the tenets of the book of the law to become a political change. So a couple of things that you're reminding me of, two parallels with Hitler. One is that, uh, you know, eradicating Christianity, Did was he also as anti-Judaism, Crowley? Crowley? Or, uh, I, I would say so. I think he that he was actually really a bigot. Yeah. He was really right, a really okay. nasty yeah. uh, UK British bigot. He yes. would insult Italians. He called the Italians the N-word. Um, oh, wow. He would belittle. He would belittle this guy, Rigardi. His real last name is Rigudi. He was R-E-G-U-D-Y. His parents were from Eastern Europe and Jewish. So they had this kind of like, when they had a falling out, they had kind of a snit, uh, kind of snappy interchange that I include in the book where uh, Rigardi shoots back that Crowley was gay and all this horrible stuff that Crowley used to do. So, yeah, so I would say that he was uh, really kind of a, 
I mean, but he was a product of his age, late 19th century UK British Empire, where he was at the top. He was in he was in the elite. So he never worked a day in his life. Oh my gosh. I mean, he got paid for his books and stuff like that, but never really worked. I would also say that there's a possibility that Hitler, I just was talking, I was on a podcast called Dave versus Goliath, and we were talking about this, that there were a lot of revolutionaries in Germany after World War One, and from Guido Preparata's book, I can't track him down, but if you haven't interviewed him yet, I bet you could track him down. Guido Preparata. He wrote two books. Name, he wrote, wrote a few One he wrote is Conjuring Hitler, where the British banking elite wanted to destroy Germany culturally, but wanted to keep the financial apparatus intact. And so they they wanted, they, of all the little revolutionaries they could find, they secretly promoted, whether he knew it or not, Hitler, because he felt they felt he could fit the bill. And I wouldn't be surprised if something, I, I think that that probably kind of thing works more often than we would ever expect where they just find someone who's very well suited to what they want. And instead of canceling them or suppressing them, like they do with 99% of the revolutionaries, this one has an open field. So I wouldn't be surprised if he falls into that. But when you were saying people call him a dabbler, Alistair Crowley, listen, I have to, I was just dumbfounded when I read the first paragraph of his wiki entry. Have you ever seen his wiki entry? Not recently. <laughs> Alistair Crowley. Did it say Diablo? Oh, no, not not even. He was an English occultist, philosopher, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. He founded the religion of Thelema, identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the eon of Horus in the early 20th century. A political writer, he published widely over the course of his life. Like, I don't see Satan, called himself the beast. Right. Like, that's not, I, I, would, I would lead with AKA the beast. <laughs> I prefer to be called the beast. <laughs> yeah, he would sign all his things, the beast 666, and then I do mean, 93, 93, 93, so. It's just they, they uh, downplay. They didn't call him a dabbler, but they didn't even mention the literally overtly Luciferian nature yeah. of what he did and literally dedicated his life to as his primary thing. They don't even mention it, so that I'm validating <laughs> your saying. Yeah, that. no, I mean, yeah, uh, that's one of the interesting things I did actually going back to source text and reading all that stuff for myself is how political biases or uh, uh, sympathy for the occult has changed people's analysis of Crowley and how they leave stuff out there. Like even the book Prayer to Rabo by Kaczynski, he's an OTO member, so he's never going to include some of the more negative aspects of Crowley. And just kind of wow, do a kind of, yeah. So, and some of them are there's there's uh, I think Lawrence Sutton's biography is really good. Uh, I forgot the name of it offhand, but he's an academic. I think it's good, but they miss out some of the religious aspects. I think probably. And uh, one of the things I did I think differentiates me. Prophet of Evil really is kind of a biography of Crowley. What I did is try to find people who knew Crowley and wrote about him. So I put people in there that I didn't see in other places: Hemingway, Ford Maddox, Ford. Um, Somerset Mom wrote a book on Crowley called The Magician and knew him. Clifford Bax, who met Crowley. Another guy's uh, Lance Steve King. People probably wouldn't know those names in the U.S., but maybe more on the continent in U.K., those names might be more familiar. But they knew and met Crowley. So those are those kind of first person house. Or another guy is, uh, oh, I can't remember. He's an American film director. So some of those kind of first. Martin Scorsese. No, his name is, uh, oh, it'll come to me. He was a kind of a famous uh, film director in the 30s. Of, uh, but his mom knew Crowley, was actually 
Crowley's girlfriend for a while. And so he had a first uh, person thing, Jefferson. I can't remember his name. Sure. I'll, I'll figure it out. Anyway, but so that's kind of differentiates me is I tried to see people who knew Crowley kind of, and uh, most of them were kind of critical, but they didn't have, they, they weren't, didn't have those kind of biases that maybe some modern uh, historians or uh, researchers into Crowley would have. So, yes, I, I see people in the chat talking about the more modern stuff, Roman Polanski, Mick Jagger, but I want to start, I want to stick with, like, since you're talking about people who were from actually Crowley's lifetime, uh, I'm really fascinated by the Jack Parsons thing, this, the science fiction writers, Arthur C. Clarke, I think Robert Heinlein, uh, Heinlein was... They said one of the things in your book was that the only book Charles Manson would allow his followers to read was Stranger in a Strange Land. And it had, and I, I've always been such a huge sci fi fan, and I liked Heinlein because I'm, uh, you know, kind of an anarcho capitalist in my kind of economic philosophy. But there were the 2001 A Space Odyssey just was from what I was reading in your book, just undeniably riddled with this occultism. What, and some of those people had did also have connections with military intelligence. And, you know, so it just seems like science, science fiction, Scientology, Jack Parsons established JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab. He worked at Caltech. He was, I have a book called Sex and Rockets about Jack Parsons. And I just, you know, there's just a weird body of like, how do you think the science, the space, the sci-fi guys, Scientology, even L. Ron Hubbard, you know, all that stuff comes together because Crowley was a really influential on all those people. Definitely. And I think that that was it. He was, Crowley was also a fiction writer as well. So he wrote kind of mystery novels and some other stuff that they, and Moonchild was one of them. Uh, but I think that in the 30s and 40s, Hubbard is putting out a lot of the science fiction and actually the science fiction influence science. So a lot of people got these ideas from science to do it. So Arthur C. Clarke uh, was a science fiction writer, wrote 2001, and some really other ones. What is it? Childhood's End, uh, Contact with Rama, or whatever it was. But he actually right. was a science fiction writer, but also created the geosynchronous satellite orbit, right? So his ideas were also fictional and non-fictional. And that's a good example. And you, he was friends with Kubrick. We can go into that. It's so but. crazy. When I first came out here, I don't remember exactly where it was. I guess it was a few years ago now. But I remember seeing this crazy stuff in the sky. And it was really crazy. It was like a fluorescent ribbon, like there was a ribbon dancer or something or a comet like in the sky. And we didn't hear about it on the news or anything. And I had to look it up and supposedly it was Elon Musk, like launching something. And I'm thinking that's not, that's not rocket fuel. They said it was kerosene, but it was like pure white. And I feel like this is cause this was here. And I just feel like it's ground zero for all that stuff, but that there are connections with the fiction and the nonfiction. There kind of always have been, I almost feel like science fiction's main purpose is to kind of carve pathways in our brains to get ready for what's to come. So it's not like, what the hell is that? Like we're ready for it I somehow. Agree. I agree. Look at HG Wells, look at 1984 fiction, but applies to nonfiction. You mentioned Edgar Allan Poe. He actually wrote one of the first space travel 
uh, re, uh, science fiction book, uh, stories. It's about taking a balloon to the moon. And so he was thinking about that. I mean, total genius. I forgot to pull this off the charts. But uh, I, I forgot the name of it's in his compendium of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff with Purloin Letter and Murder in the Rue Morgue. But yeah, I wish I could remember that. So that's another example. That's even before the 20th century. So he's writing and thinking about that. So I think that you're right. Right. These ideas, even in fiction, are seeding real world events. And I think that's what Parson really was. I think that his part of his rocketeering type stuff that was happening in Pasadena was an outgrowth of his occult knowledge, of his occult interests. And then he blew himself so, up. And I was like, that seemed like the neck to death. He blew himself up to death. And I felt like that was some kind of nexus between his experimentation. I mean, perhaps he was looking for a power, a powerful way to kind of blow through to the next genera- uh, dimension. It didn't, wouldn't surprise he me. Was very, he was very dedicated. Crowley said that he was his most important follower. And I think it's in that. That quote is from Love and Rockets. I think it's in there where Crowley admits that. And that's the Agape Lodge, right? That was in Pasadena. And on, I think he was actually, Parsons was on Orange Grove. Yes. So his old place was a real mansion. And a lot of those mansions got torn down and turned into apartments. So yes, not all of them. Up. The Rose Bowl mansion is still on that street. And it's just funny because the roses that, it, like the Rosicrucian right. thing, Kiss can't help but notice that. But also up on Ro- Orange Grove is an, uh, a, an um, historical landmark called the Gamble House where... Back to the Future was in part filmed. That was the home of the mad scientist that Iggy played, whatever, I forget his name, Um, Iggy from Taxi, but he was the mad scientist there. And I, I always wondered if that was some little nod to Parsons to have the mad scientist who is experimenting with time travel in the Gamble House on Orange Grove, who's always blowing himself up. Right. Kind of it's funny. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And 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 Parsons really is kind of a mad scientist. He's doing. They called his group the Suicide Squad because they're always blowing stuff up in Arroyo Grande oh, and yes, doing new that's techniques where, and stuff. That's where yeah, it would so it was be. Him. Yeah. It's actually interesting because it was him, Foreman, and Molina. Molina was uh, the Czech last name, and Molina's son married one of the Maxwell. Robert Maxwell's daughters. Have you heard that? See, no, but this stuff, yeah, it yeah. just, it, it's just flabbergasting. It's you know, the coincidences are crazy. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump quite to the 9-11 stuff yet. However, I did want to point out one thing, which is the you said something when you're talking about 9-11 that the the numbers involved, which again are undeniable. So like these connections are undeniable. The numbers are undeniable. The 11, the fact that 93 was cited in your book from a quote from long, long before, really extensive stuff about September 11th as a significant date, about the number 93 as being particularly significant to Crowley, not your words, somebody else's words long before 9-11. And one thing that you said that goes right to something that I feel strongly about, is you said you felt that that could be or was a a signal to everyone who uh, understands it that this was an inside job. And I feel like that reasoning is so much more compelling than the alternative theories of the revelation of the method. I'm not saying you don't have both, but I feel like more often than not, the reason you're getting predictive programming, you're getting not only just to carve the pathways in people's brains, but to the extent that there's a signaling 
purpose there. It's, and this is how I put it, I've said this before, but that like when Babe Ruth points to the outfield, like this is where I'm hitting this ball kid. So the kid knows it was intentional. It was for him. He did it. I feel like they say, look, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And then when I do it, you respect me because I am the magician rather than just say, well, I need your consent. I just, that doesn't ring true to me that, that we, that we need consent. We, they have our consent because we let it happen. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that they know. And I think that all these numerological things are co common in Crowley. 93 Crowley, like I said earlier, he signed his things. A shorthand is 93, 93, 93. And it, it applies to Thelema and Agape, both in his system. All these guys in the OTO are involved in gematria, getting the numerical value of words. So in English, both Thelema and Agape add up to 93. And in 9-11, so there was a flight 93. There was a flight 11. It was September 11th, 9-11. 2001, which 2001 is Space Odyssey, the first uh, year of the new millennium, and that being the how, start of how new tall epoch. Is the, how tall is the obelisk? <laughs> 11 how tall is the obelisk? feet or yeah. whatever it was. Right. Yeah, it's 11 feet tall. So they're, they're saying, like, Arthur C. Clarke is an occultist. I can assure you he, he's Masonic. I mean, you can go through his works and see all the numerology. I've included it in the book. Yeah. And I probably could do a much more exhaustive research into him alone, but... I mean, it gets pretty heavy yeah. because 9-11 wasn't the first time. Who was the person doing the play-by-play -play for the landing on the moon on TV? Who was the I feel like there was, was the Walter Cronkite, but no. Who was it? No, well, Arthur C. Clarke, too. Oh, it was? Oh, Clark, oh, yeah, him yeah. saying? You can go. Yeah, no, he was, like, telling people all the stuff. And it's totally fake, right? Of so course. So the moon landing is fake. It's so very he's funny. in on it. Yeah, so... And he wrote, the, I mean, uh, he wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey as he he and he and Kubrick had an agreement where Kubrick would make the movie and, and Arthur C. Clarke would write the book. So you can see the numer numerical codes in the 2001 there's, Space Odyssey, which adds on to 2010, which is Lucifer and all this other stuff. There's a the picture of, of them Lucifer. together, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's lots of pictures of them together. It's actually kind of strange because... They were in Manhattan writing out and hashing out their ideas uh, while the Twin Towers were being built in the background. So it's very strange. And they were hanging out with friends uh, at, what was that famous hotel there? So The Langham, they, the Ritz, uh, here? Uh, not the Ritz, I can't remember. It's like, where where did uh, the guy from the Sex Pistols die? What was the name of that hotel? Oh, I should know that. I forgot. I should know this too. Anyway. So they had a very close relationship. There's actually another picture of them. You can look up online where they were with a guy by the name of Mueller, who was, I think, if not the head of NASA or one of the top chiefs of NASA. So what are they doing together? And they called uh, when when Kubrick was making 2001, he was doing it in London. And they, the nickname for that uh, studio was called NASA East. <laughs> so kind of, there was all kinds of very curious interplays between Kubrick and NASA and Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, so now we're getting into the 60s, and that I do have to revisit the rest of the Hans Uter stuff. It was so comprehensive. And then you had another guy who asked you to do a dead, a show on the dead, but he clearly yeah, was right. sick Carl as a, Hassel. he was Carl sick Hassel. as a dog. 
<laughs> I felt so bad for him, but he was so excited to talk to you that he was not going to cancel. I could tell that for sure. But I've always been fascinated by all that stuff. My husband's a deadhead. He will not let me talk about it at all because I will ruin it for him and he gets pleasure out of it and he's a functioning adult, so I don't think it's doing him any harm. But I am fascinated by that stuff and particularly my first album I ever bought, my favorite band when I was growing up was The Doors. And then I was blown away when I saw a picture of Jim Morrison on the ship of his father, the Admiral, who did the Gulf of Tonkin episode, like with... I mean, maybe one year before he made the scene as a mop-headed sex idol, he's like super clean cut with the, you know, a collared plaid shirt on the deck of a ship with his famous admiral. So I'm really fascinated by all this. I know Mick Jagger, whom I've seen many times on stage, even to this day at the Rose Bowl, not too long ago. So I'm not anti, I love the music, but... He had Marianne Faithful, who was a Masak. There was the Tavistock connection. You draw so many connections with Keith Richards. Um, and then you've got Ozzy Osbourne. And um, who else was in that? There was the Beatles. There was um, Jimmy Page. I want to hear about that. So anything you want to tell me about how you think Crowley's influenced or if these guys have been influenced by the OTO or any of that during that period? Have you ever seen Jim Morrison uh, with his hands over a bust of Aleister Crowley? Seen that picture? Yes, I have. Yeah, Check him out. The, the, a lot of blood drinking, actually, surprisingly. So Jim Morrison had a witch wife. Uh, her name was Keneally. And it's featured in Al, uh, Oliver Stone's movie, The Doors. But the, he uh, he definitely drank human blood in, in his uh, kind of Wiccan witch marriage that he had. And, you could, and he knew about it. So he writes about it in Peace Frog actually just posted about that he says blood on the street in the yes haven. blood on the rise blood and stains the, <laughs> the roots in the palm trees of venice so bloody red love my terrible sonner bloody red son of fantastic la and then he says blood stain what does it say blood is the rose of mysterious union so that's really so again human I, have, blood drinking. I have the same and question Curly was into human blood drinking and human like Everything. I'm a little worried about Pope Francis on that front, but uh, <laughs> I'm not not a fan. I literally, have seen heard rumors to that effect, and back back before I was even open to that as a real possibility, and I'm like, could be. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely real. So doors definitely. Uh, I include a guy that a lot of people may not know about. His name is Donald Camel, whose dad wrote a biography about Crowley and knew Crowley in. Northern Scotland or in Scotland. So they knew each other. And Donald Campbell literally sat on Crowley's knee when he was yet was a kid. And then he grows up, becomes friends with uh Keith uh Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger, he directs Mick Jagger in performance. This film that's considered by the British one of the top 100 uh films in British history, which is very strange in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of overlap between that and Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut because performance, the original take hit the Warner Brothers execs and they freaked out and it took them a year and a half to get a version out to the public. So Donald Campbell was definitely an occultist, knew all of that kind of occult knowledge and stuff like that. And performance includes a lot of curious references and includes, I think, Mary and Faithful or, or the other one, uh, Pallenberg, who was a witch. So there's a lot of witchy things going on around uh, the doors and kind of famously ended the sixties at Altamont with the killing of this guy, Meredith. Uh, that was kind of like the, the peak of the sixties, of the like, wow, this is really brutal and death. I think they were playing 
sympathy for the devil too. Right, right. I've heard of that. Okay, I have questions if I can interrupt you, but you can finish, but then I have to ask you questions. Well, there's just a lot. I mean, you can go through the Beatles. No, uh, I got to stop Sergeant you Sergeant Peppers, Crowley's on the cover. I have two the referencing stuff. He Crowley may have been Sergeant Pepper, right? Because they say 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper talked out the band of play. So Crowley died in 47. All right, I need your so opinion. So there's all kinds of weird, mysterious stuff. Man. I want your opinion on two things. So Jim Morrison, drinking blood, Aleister Crowley, but also on the ship of his dad. If, let's, I, I assume he was somehow recruited. Like, it's hard for me to circle that, square that circle, as they say, because he can't, he wasn't really musically trained yet. He showed up with the doors with all these, like, super hits on pieces of paper. I don't know. That's, I've read some weird stuff about him. Do you think that he may have been recruited, but also may have become a true believer? Do you think that happens? It could be. I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't know if that background exists. It wouldn't be outside of the norm. I mean, if you read Dave McCowan's weird scenes. In yes, I have. Is, all those people had military intelligence. Back. Every I mean, one of them. Cros even David Crosby, who died, too. was like an yes. American elite. He, he was a Van Cortland. When he got out of jail, he thanked the judge for putting him in jail. I was like, <laughs> yeah. who does So that? these guys all are more sophisticated. Zappa's dad. All these guys have weird yes. military stuff. So it's not surprising if maybe Morrison, somebody was feeding himself. I think the Beatles, actually, a lot of their songs were not written by them. I think somebody else yeah. fed them stuff. I believe that. Uh, now they put out way too much. Yeah. So that was real culture creation. Right. We can get into Harry Potter, which is a I lot totally of want stuff, to. I have to ask you one more is, question. Which is culture creation. I think Harry Potter is totally uh, cultural. And and it I, I mean, think it high. Her backstory, JK Rowling is I don't think. Um, okay, but wait, one more question. So when I watched Eyes Wide Shut, it reminded me of an interaction I had in a in a restaurant in LA once many years ago where an older actor just was sitting next to us. I don't know why he started talking to us. So he started talking to us, and he introduced this pretty young woman. And it was her birthday. She was 27. And he was like, she's 27 today. And I was like, don't you realize, like, that's gross to me. Not because I, I, I don't think that you can have a May-December romance. I think that's, that is possible. But... He, he can't have thought that he he wasn't very attractive, that he wooed this chick. Like, clearly it was his fame and fortune that attracted him, her to him. And I thought, he likes that. Like, that was so culturally different for me. And then I was reminded of it when I saw Eyes Wide Shut or rewatched Eyes Wide Shut. And I was like, these guys literally are thinking of of these women as some, as real objects, like real objects to be like, to torture them or hurt them like a pet or animal or a workhorse or whatever was fine with them. And I could not get my mind around it. And I wondered if you have any, if that, if that's true, if you notice that, if there's any insight into that, like the slave thing that they kind of think is an okay thing to do. I just can't get that through my head. I think that's fair. I mean, if you look at Epstein, Weinstein, John Luke Brunel, I think that they really are at the point where these are just objects for an expression of power. I think sex yes. is part of it, but it's like yes. power over it. And I think it's interesting because yes. I just did a show with Mark Ebner about this guy who was targeted by the Falwells. Uh, his name was Gianluca Granda. 
but 20, good looking guy. But I think it was really about power. It wasn't really just about sex because they kind of controlled him and groomed him and did looked into his background and kind of played with him like a cat plays with a mouse before it kills it or something like threatened him. There were threats. They actually sicked like, it was kind of like eyes wide shut where like a secret, like a PI follows him around because they follow around the Tom Cruise character. But I do think that's there. And you don't know how, what these people are getting brought into and those eyes wide shut scene, eyes wide shut scenes. Um, and there are 11 kind of women. So you can sell that to ritual. Magic. Oh, yeah. so if you go back and look at the, the uh, you know uh, mansion scene where they're doing the ritual, so it's there the double headed eagle and everything like that. It is there's an interesting tie in because like I mentioned earlier, Crowley wrote for the International, and the guy who wrote Trauma Novel, which was uh, I Chubb was based on, was in like the same version of uh, the International with Crowley. His name I can't remember offhand, but uh, yeah, so. Okay. It's, a, it's a weird small world, but I do believe those kind of controls, and I believe that that kind of the wealth and how to, uh, I think people get their, they get some kind of like personal satisfaction of, it confirms their power, confirms their authority, and uh, so I think that, that that that's not outside of the realm. I think that's actually pretty common in the kind of like liege lord history, the kind of feudalistic view of the people at the top towards the people closer to the bottom, right? They're just to be used. And, yes. and Crowley was like that towards women. He had these women he called the Scarlet Women. And what he would, he, that was almost kind of like an energy-sucking vampiric relationship. He would brand each one of them on the chest like, oh, a, like a cow with what he called the Mark of the Beast, which oh. was a mix of kind of a phallic star moon thing. And you can literally see pictures of it. So like, they actually reported this stuff. Like you think uh, journalism uh, is is very you know vivid today. Back then, they, there's pictures of Crowley's Scarlet Women with this uh, brand on their chest out there. But he did it, and what he would do is like that. He would do this stuff to get as much energy out of whatever he was doing with these women, and then just discard them. So there's pictures like this one girl. I can't, I can't remember her name offhand, but she was with him at the Abbey of Thelema. And before she went in to meet Crowley, she was this pr kind of pretty uh, young woman. And by the time Crowley was done with her, she looked like she had stared into the eyes of a ghost. Oh wow! And it was she was done. Yeah, he left her on the street. This is like the <sighs> ugly, one of the ugly aspects of Crowley. There's a lot of them, but he left her on the streets of France to fend for herself. She became a prostitute. So right. once he was done, he was done. And that was kind of his relationship with everything. He had five kids. There's no real evidence that Crowley spent any quality time with his children. Well, One they're probably better off. I think they're better off that way. <laughs> they might be better off. Yeah, one was named, Ad he named it Ataturk uh, Crowley, who ended up kind of like being a half-mad street person who slept on park benches. You can look up Ataturk Crowley wow. online. You'll see pictures of him. Yeah, crazy name. But yeah, I definitely agree that it's that it's power. And for me, I feel like the ultimate achievement is love. Like I feel like I want to be love. I want to earn love, and I, I like to do it under Paris. You're actually suspicious of that, you know. Like I, I dated a rich guy, and he like didn't ever like to pay for people, not because he was cheap at all. He was, but he just was like, I'm not I'm not buying friends. Like I don't like that. And I just, it's just a different mindset to think that you could get off on that. I, I see, I think that's trashy, but whatever. <laughs> you know? So I do want to hear it about J.K. Rowling, uh, because I always felt 
like, you know, Christ, Antichrist, she was the anti-Narnia, like the anti-C.S. Lewis, and intentionally so, because C.S. Lewis really satisfied a deep but good archetype, I feel like, in us, you know, and I think science fiction and stuff like that does fulfill something we need about being able to fantasize outside what's immediately in our realm of understand of experience so that we can understand what's beyond it. And so there was a place there that needed to be filled probably. And I just, I would like to hear what her story is or what you think about her. And I'm always suspicious when like, you know, the greatest whatever is a chick, you know, not that chicks can't be smart or whatever, but I feel like these days that's, that's, they often do that because they are trying to, I don't know, shape society in a certain way. Well, you can go and see J.K. Rowling. Look up her when she says, do you believe in magic? She's like a pro proponent of magic, and it's in the books. And her Genesis story of Harry Potter, right, it's a five and a six, a six and 11 letter to her, like Tyler Jordan. Jordan, this is not a mistake. This is there for a reason. So 11 pops up. The the wand, the first wand that Harry Potter has is 11 uh, inches long, right? So they're continuing this kind of magical theme. The Genesis story is that she was a poor old single mom, you know, living on the dole, and she came up with this. Well, another researcher who I've read some stuff on, Miles Mathis, went and looked at her background. She's part of the peerage. She has all kinds of, like, uh, aristocratic family members. And her publisher, I think it was Bloomsbury, if I remember correctly, never published, like, published one book before Harry Potter. So it wasn't even a known publisher. And then it turns into this massive thing. And if you look back in British history, it wouldn't be the first time cultural creation happened. I think Shakespeare uh, was, was a creation. Definitely. Um, of Francis yeah, Bacon, so, the Shakespeare yeah. Project. You've had him on too, right? Yes, Robert Frederick. Yes, and so Robert have you. Frederick, yeah, I actually yeah, met him. Times. He came to a meetup of mine before he did his first podcast. So I'm, oh, cool. I have, a, have a dibs on Robert. <laughs> it's great. No, I can't wait podcast, for I highly recommend it. I know. Stuff. It's uh, called The Hidden Life is Best, but I keep waiting. It takes him so long to do one, which is understandable, but I'm always waiting. And sometimes I, I think I've probably listened to everyone he already put out more than once. I just, I love it. He's another one. Yeah. I just, I like the sound. I think he's a musician. So it's just like something about a sound that is also. No, very knowledgeable. Though. I yes. Think he, I think he makes his point. Like he knows, he knows all that stuff. Yes. But anyway, J.K. Rowling, interesting fact about her is that she didn't have a middle name. She just selected the 11th letter in the <laughs> At random. <laughs> so this is another thing of signaling. She knows yes. all of the things. If you were in the witchcraft world or occult world, the owl, Harry Potter, the fact that it's uh, alchemy, this is all elementary kind of occultism that they're they're showing in the first book, right? The Sorcerer's Stone, the Philosopher's Stone. This is like they're giving it to kids. So it's very powerful. And they, they distilled whoever did that book. They didn't miss a beat. They got everything into that first thing. And they structured it in a very clever way. And this is a very kind of common argument within the occult. Is there such a thing as, as good magic, right? Is there such a thing as white magic? So the way that Harry Potter is structured is it's the muggles, right? The mundanes. And then there's Voldemort, the bad guy. But right in between there, working the magic is Harry Potter, right? So he's not one of these boring... Milk toast mundanes, uh, muggles. Uh, that's actually an 09A term, but he's definitely not the black magic guy either. He's using magic and learning for good. So I think that that's an important baseline point for what they really are trying to uh, come across for, with uh, Harry Potter. 
And what's the funny. source of the magic? What's the source of the magic? I don't in know, Harry Potter, it, you know, uh, like I, I don't know. I don't. I know. I can't read them, but oh. I found them hard to read, so I didn't read them. But I, I just like I haven't read them all. There has to be a source, right? So with Narnia, it's very clear what the source is. Like the metaphor is quite oh. strong. There's a lion, <laughs> you know. And well, I, think, a I think the source of Harry Potter is is the Western esoteric tradition. I think it's all there. They actually include a guy by the name of Flamel in the first Harry Potter, and he's a known uh, alchemist. Like you can just look up his name. So I think that's the whole thing. So, you know, the alchemy way is the way of self-perfection. So you go from the Negro to the gold or whatever. Is it a kind of Gnosticism, like speaking of the Francis Bacon thing, where it's like the man, man is the pinnacle or man is the God? Because I think yes. that's something yes, that they so. do. Yeah. Some people are talking about Gnosticism in a positive way in the alt space. Like I hear podcasters whom I respect and for a variety of reasons, like uh, aspiring to Gnosticism. And I do mean to understand like the, because if you listen to the um, Robert Frederick, he's very down on it. And it does seem like it has this parallel with the Satanism, but I don't know if, I don't know. I just don't know how to figure that out either. I mean, there are guys out there, Gnostic radio and Ann Biden, some of these other, I think if you look at it from a, a biblical perspective, a new Testament perspective, I think that the Gnostic worldview is antagonistic to the Bible-based right, okay. Christian view. So I think the Gnostic, I think the Gnostic is that, I mean, I, I, would, I don't know. I, I would have to go back and confirm yeah. that. But my understanding is that there's additional knowledge that people can get to attain salvation. Right. So it's knowledge-based okay. salvation. So it's not, know. you're, because you're not Catholic. Not, I, Christ, they, not through Christ. I was raised Catholic. Oh, okay. Because some people I've been, I've been say like the, the Catholics, yeah. like Irenaeus or whatever, three or 400, cut that stuff out. And that's why we think it's alien. But I would trust you to say that you independently believe that it is alien to the... I think it's, yeah. I think it's stuff that's alien to the standard... Uh, biblically based. Right. I mean, that, I think they were fighting about Gnosticism right from the beginning. I think Paul was. Yeah, 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 and, for sure. Mm -hmm. so. That's why, like, I I mean, that that's something that would bear, you know, a lot of, I, I probably have to read like 10 books to really have an opinion on my own. Yeah. So it wasn't really fair for me to throw that at you. Although I did just get a message. There's a question. How much of this is intentional culture creation via intelligence? And how much is just elite nepotism? So maybe we're talking about Rowling, like they needed to put that out there. Is it really they're in the cabal, like the Masak chick, you know, Marian Faithful, like Masak is in masochism. So how much is it all uh, a big cabal, like, or how much is it nepotism, do you think? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably J.K. I think Harry Potter was probably a creation of multiple people um, or groups and put out. But uh, for their benefit, I mean, it's made billions of dollars. And it's kind of created this kind of magical worldview. So maybe they wanted to have something palatable for people to look at to kind of put a nice sugar coat on this these kind of ideas and, and change the culture. And yeah. I think the Beatles, too. Like, if you look at the Beatles, I think they were huge culture change agents. There's all kinds of oh. allegations of the Tavistock being in there. Yes. And the, really the culture of the Beatles changing radically from kind of like a bubblegum pop. Yes. I love you, too. LSD, weed occultism yes esotericism i want to hold so, your hand to fast. hey yeah. jude i mean in in 10 short years 
and just, you know, and all the things that happened that, that decade from real, like, so that would be a good time to start maybe talking about like JFK's assassination as a black mass type thing, 9-11 as a black mass type thing that maybe it induces trauma or it's uh, a worship, worshiping death, having everybody, you know, whatever, watch and absorb a death. Like, do you, you can tell me all about 9-11, but if you have an opinion about JFK, you could throw that in too. Well, I think that JFK was um i think they they had a choice they probably he wasn't very healthy and he was taking drugs mm -hmm. and uh dr feel good so i think that it was intentional to cause that trauma and i think that that was it like they wanted it to advertise don't mess with the kind of secret government yeah. and i think that was that's a conclusion by one of the jfk researchers his name was salandria and he thinks that it was intentional they intentionally did that to say hey don't mess around with us you know the people who jfk irritated was a lot. It was yeah. like the total secret government, the Federal Reserve, the CIA, the military. So I think they were saying, and I think that really set off. I do think JFK was trying to stop the kind of blood bath that was coming. And I think that he was really doing it sensibility, whether it was Operation Northwoods or invading Cuba. I think he was really trying to be, a, I mean, he had been in actually been in actual war. So I think he was trying to forestall that and may have had some kind of prescience or premonition or something how bad it was going to get. Because once Johnson got in power, yeah. it was a disaster. Yeah, that was a so. Bad. So he said. I mean, so I think that that I mean, people have written it a downer to killing the King 33, that there was elements of this masonry there. And I think that they, they're I think a lot of the guys who were involved were involved in uh, masonry or kind of occulted social groups or things like that. And they're definitely KKK like on Texas at that time too. So that's oh, another right. group that, that is started. Another. About, but know, I think the, the JFK, the, Pike. the most important element I think of why he would have had to have gone was in his last public speech, which was at American University, where he says, I want uh, peace. I want not a Pax Americana, not a Pax Americana. And that I think I I have a feeling I don't know if I read this or it just seemed like timing or I think where we was the CIA creating like literally constructing a tribal war in Algeria like that didn't even exist like they were creating history making it more important than it ever was and he I think when he realized that he was like we are actually the ones that are standing between the world and peace and then at the same time the report from Iron Mountain. If you, I don't know if you've ever dug into that. Boy, was that good. It came out around that time. I believe it landed on his desk where the subtitle was on the possibility and desirability of peace. And in the final analysis, they said it was not desirable to have peace, that you wouldn't, you just, we could, the hierarchy would be threatened if we allow peace. And peace was a risk because of nuclear war. The nuclear bomb could, could have been like what Tesla wanted, which was, he wanted to make a super weapon that was so powerful that anyone could have it and it would make us be nice to each other, kind of like rating each other on Uber. <laughs> like you just, there's something that just makes everybody nicer to each other. And that's what he said. And they were worried about that. And uh, they said, we have to figure something else out. And I, of course, think they thought of like climate change or whatever. They said, we, we've thought of a few things, but we're not going to mention it here because we don't want to, we don't want to expose it, but I think terrorism, environmentalism, those were a couple of things. But so I really feel like he knew that that the CIA or whatever was standing between 
and he just could not live with that. I think that was what caused his death knell. But but then they use, like some of the other things, then they'll use that as an opportunity. And I feel like 9-11, yeah, they had to get those towers down because they had asbestos in them. <laughs> and they weren't wired for right. computers. Yeah. But, you know, you got to take that as an opportunity. And, um, but... So I mean, well, those are you wrote so much. JFK yeah. and 9/11 are fulcrum points, right? Absolutely. So once JFK was gone, everything changed. Uh, we're back on in Vietnam. Uh, the deep state's back. CIA's back. Nobody's going after the CIA. So 9/11, you get Patriot Act, you get war in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. So those same, I think, those same interests are probably being served by JFK and 9/11. Those the JFK assassination. So. Uh, those are planned events, structured events. I think they were trying to get JFK pretty much all through 1963 in Miami and Chicago, and then they got him in Dallas. But uh, I think both of those events also not only are turning points in culture and, and power and everything, but they're also, I think, Mark, a leveling down of press coverage, of media integrity. I think both, both of those things took a whole new... Um, approach to censorship on the press, you know, and I just, that's why I look at something and I'll say, well, is this written before 9-11? Like, I think there was something like Dollars for Terror, which is, was translated from French. It's a great book, but this guy wasn't a conspiracy theorist because it was before 9-11 and he's got all this documentation and you, you know, it was well received at the time because it was before you weren't allowed to talk about the U.S. government promoting Middle Eastern terror. And then after that, nobody right, would touch right. it. Well, a lot of those people in the Middle East were installed by the CIA. There were tons of operations in Iraq, Iran. Mossadegh was taken out, right? <laughs> yes. uh, there was a guy before Saddam Hussein was kicked out. Saddam Hussein was a CIA asset. He just yes. went rogue and they said no. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> we can go into detail about that. So the, the world control of the U.S. really after World War II was uh, incredible, uh, unparalleled. Well, unparalleled. In, uh, you know, I'm sure you've. In human I'm sure you've done it. Maybe more times than you wanted to do it, but I I wouldn't mind. I have one more big question for you, and maybe if we could do the 9/11 thing in a in another interview, or are you sick sure, of talking sure, about yeah. that? Because then I'll read that book, and we can it'll because there's so much there. I don't think we can cover it in the amount of time. But I but one thing that I have never I haven't heard you talk about, but I know you have touched on it in interviews and stuff with other people, but. The the scale of the COVID operation from the pandemic to lockdown to just so many things being, I mean, just the, the great reset, the demolition of so much that's important to us and that we, we took it wearing masks, which feels very ritualistic and um, alchemy in our blood with the RNA stuff. Do you, have you given any thought to the kind of the significance of the past couple of years from, from the, this kind of perspective? I think it's still the push for kind of a global new world order, right? It's based on the old world order. I think it's Estelin said that, where it's really just the old line families, like the eyes wide shut families wanting to aggregate more power. So any event is, is to that end. And where did the money go during COVID? It went up. So. Gates got richer, Bezos got richer, all the you know people who own certain stocks got richer. So I think that that was the the agenda. And then 
you know, the big coal, I think they're trying to, to kill off a lot of the population, as many as they want, I guess, at this point. I guess if Gates' is optimal, you know, kill off is 10 to 15 percent, that seems like the right number. So we don't even know the full effect of really what's in these shots and what the long-term effects are. So I do see something very sinister or something planned and uh, whether like the occult, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you kind of get into kind of the book of revelation and stuff like that. But I did say it's interesting because I wrote, when I wrote prophet of evil, my first version in 2010, I said they will use kind of shots or vaccinations to kind of implement their, their goal in the new world order. So I have a new world order section. And that's why I had that kind of strange title is because a lot of those mm. ideas, I think, work together. Alistair Crowley, 9-11. And then they blew they up were. the Georgia Guidestones. That was so significant. Like, that's where yeah, they had I think so. written all of that stuff, and then they just blew it up. I mean, it's just crazy. Another monolith, right? So you yeah. see JFK's last speech. He's talking about the monolithic conspiracy, the monolith in the 20, 2001 space odyssey, all of the design of the Georgia Guidestones is monolithic. So you can see that tie-in there, Yeah, yeah. That's kind of probably the occult ideas that are actually put in stone so people can see it. And go look up the, the Hilton uh, Millennium Tower. Go look that up for 9-11. That'll, that'll give you The Hilton Millennium a, Tower, a where is surprise. that? That's uh, right next to the Twin Towers that went down. Oh. But it's basically just a giant black monolith. Interesting. Well, I will have to check that out. Okay, so I am... Wow, you really did cover. I have like two pages worth of things I wanted to hear about, but I, you covered, I think, basically all of it. I mean, I can't, I can't ask you about Jimmy Page. I think we all know that he had that he bought that mansion and stuff like that. But I've already gotten some complaints that I've ruined the doors, I've ruined Grateful Dead, I've ruined the stones. I think I'm going to stop. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I mean, literally, you can get it your own. Just listen to Houses of the Holy, and I think you've pretty much got it covered. But which is a great album, by the way. <laughs> so, oh, is there anything else that you think that we should cover right now? If uh, before we go on, you know, just that whole on this book, I think we covered a lot. <laughs> I mean, I covered in Children of the Beast. I include a section on Genesis P. Orge the Temple of Psychic Youth, and he pops up in this whole Balenciaga scandal. There's that literal picture of him in one of these uh, designers' Instagram. So they have an aff affinity for him. What is that? Michael Aquino's in one of their Instagram. Who? So you have to check out my, uh, who? Genesis P. Orge. But, what, but wait, so what's the youth thing? I missed that. How did I miss that? So do you remember, like, just recently within the last month, Balenciaga got yeah. a bunch of heat by putting pics of little kids yeah. with a bunch of BDSM stuff and stuff like that. So in those same kind of uh, some of those characters who are involved as the designers for Balenciaga in their Instagram is some of the people I wrote about here, Genesis P. Orge. I wrote about in Children of the Beast. And all this stuff, and Kanye's involved in this. And then I include Alejandro Yordorowski, who's in Children of the Beast. And he pops up again. He's also a human blood drinker. And he's hanging out with Kanye. So it's a very strange kind of weird uh, world of... Uh, modern fashion design and occultism. I just tweeted today. I don't think I tweeted anything today except for this one article about a guy who is um, trying to achieve youth 
it was somehow it came across my Yahoo channel, um, Yahoo feed. He's trying to achieve youth. And I, and I had to read the whole thing just to see if he was going to start talking about like drinking baby's blood and all that. And I thought, why are they showing me this guy who's going through this transformation of becoming younger and anything they put in my feed, I figured they're putting there for a reason. They want us all to think this way. So I, I can't help but found, I, I definitely found it suspicious, if not sinister. So, okay. All right, let's wrap uh, it up. If people yeah. want to, yeah. Yeah, people want the book, they can go to my website, William Ramsey Investigates. They, they can have a signed copy. I think it's, I have five star reviews on Amazon. They can buy it from Amazon. It's excellent. They can hear all of my talks on William Ramsey Investigates on iTunes or Spotify. I signed a contract with Spotify last year. So, uh, oh, yeah, because you put commercials in. Well. I was so happy to hear you put commercials in because it's actually, people don't realize it. They get mad like the commercials, but it's a privilege because they pay you. And, you know, for me, I, I have a nice, wonderful producer, but, I, you know, I have to pay him. And it's very hard to get people to give you ads or whatever on a one-off basis. So it's that's when you when you hit a certain like uh, reach, they'll let you do that. So I was really really happy that you got that because you're for you to do this. I'm sure you do it. You know, you put so much effort into it from your writing to the podcasting to everything. I mean, you have to pay the bills. So this is full title: Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. And then the next one that I'm going to read is the one that was actually written before it, which is Prophet of Darkness? Prophet of Evil. Prophet of Prophet Evil, evil. Alistair Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order. And you just mentioned it when you read his Wikipedia page. He believed he was a prophet of the kind of this new, new era. So there, that's why it has the we had a really that's the book We had a really nice chat and going on over here. So if people want to read that first book, that's going to be the subject of our next conversation. I'll give people some months so they can read it. And then maybe we'll have some questions in here. People will engage in the conversation, which will be nice because this was the first Rockfin simulcast that I've been a part of, I think that's super cool. So we put it on both people's feeds at the same time. We probably should have been checking those, those questions too, those uh, comments, but we'll do a little more promotion next time and uh, we'll bring it and we'll keep bringing it, not just about that stuff, but I just, it's such a joy talking to you because you're so smart and knowledgeable and quick. And I love that. So thank well, you so much. Great to talk with you. Thanks for the invite. Thank you very much. This has been a conversation with William Ramsey of William Ramsey Investigates. And it's a live dive right here on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. <laughs>